So if everybody could find their seat, uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of books, <laughs> even at the end. <laughs> uh, I would like to uh, just reference chapter six because that's sort of where we're going to uh, dive in. <clears throat> and uh, the chapter's on continuums. Continua is the plural of continuums. Uh, and uh, it's, this is an important uh, component uh, of the teaching, I feel, that often uh, hasn't been emphasized just significantly. Now, I'm going to, over the course of uh, several months, uh, initiate all of us into different continuum so that you get a sense of your own journey, what uh, compels your journey forward uh, and finding your own place in those things. I mean, uh, you know, it's a little bit like uh, saying you're a Sagittarius rising with so moon, you know, continuums kind of fit like that. They're sort of the right, I'm an eight on the Enneagram or whatever you want to, <laughs> it's like this is my continuum. So, but we have to understand what a continuum is, and that's what I'm going to, uh, I'm going to um, explain tonight. So I'm going to outline what a continuum is, not so much highlight the process or the individual continuum as it moves. We'll be doing that in subsequent weeks. For instance, next week, we'll, uh, next week Carrie will be here, uh, replacing me, and we'll be at uh, Cloud Mountain. But the week after that, I'm going to talk about the continuum from the divided mind to the unified mind, because I think that's a broad enough that it includes everyone's uh, uh, movement and journey. Uh, but today, I just want to talk about that particular graph that you have in front of you there on your homework. And I want to uh, just emphasize the different uh, demarcations along that. Uh, it's, it's not supposed to be a complete representation of everything that happens to us on our spiritual journey. <laughs> that would be absurd. Uh, but there are certain highlights and lowlights <laughs> that show up. And uh, I would just, uh, that represent everyone's journey. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Now, first thing I want to do is talk about what a continuum is. <clears throat> It's a, it's a story. It's a story of awakening. That's what we're all doing here. We're all on the path of awakening. Now, uh, it's ge in general, I can say that all of us uh, sense that we are, our awareness is growing, that we're becoming more um, conscious, more aware. I mean, that's the point. So to move from unconsciousness to consciousness is the continuum of everyone's journey. Uh, and so the continuum shows that journey, the journey of awakening. That's a process. And yet there is a moment of awakening that is specific within that continuum and that process of awakening. So that moment of awakening I'll talk about tonight, but the process of awakening is also important for all of us to feel that we're, whether we've had the moment of awakening or not, the process is very much a part of everything we do spiritually. And so we just need to begin to 
get a sense that we're all waking up. We're all uh, beginning to uh, see things that we have denied. No one's been holding the truth from us, but we have denied, we've looked away from, we've refused to see. Many of the, of most of our, our conditioning is just that because we don't want to be alive to it. We don't want to be alive to ourselves. We don't want to know the implications of what it means to be conscious. We don't want to feel the complete sense of ourselves. We want it kind of packaged and neat and narrowed and corridored. Uh, and so uh, when at some point uh, that becomes intolerable, you want to know more. You want to break out of jail, so to speak, out of the darkness of our own psyche. And that's what uh, the spiritual journey is. All of mythology, all of the myths that we hear are really a continuum of awakenings. And uh, if you have read any of Joseph Campbell or anyone who's uh, really understands the myths, the sequenciation of myths, you'll know that there's a beginning to the journey and the journey and a starting point, you might say, and an ending point. And then a whole bunch of things happen. Usually some struggle between light and dark uh, and all kinds of uh, rather uh, demons and devils and Mara in the Buddhist terms and all of these personifications of what our own shadow, that's all this is. I like to kind of ratchet down the intensity of the demons so that <laughs> it makes it approachable here. We're not talking about being attacked, although mythologically that's expressed by Jesus going into the desert and having a conversation with the devil. Really that was a self that was a, a self in, uh, a conversation with, with, his own, with his own mind. Or the Buddha sitting down under the Bodhi tree and Mara attacking him with all the arrows of desire and of fear and whatever else. So those are, that's the mythological imagery of a continuum. And so we're not, we're not going to scare you. I don't want to, I, I think that people ratchet up the difficulty, the ten intensity, and you know, and the, and the journey is so, you know, full of, you know, all that hyperbole. Well, it's not. The beauty of Vipassana is that you probably, if you've been doing this meditation for any length of time, pretty much have seen the whole spectrum of what your mind offers. Well, if you have, and you're willing to see it and have courage enough to ground yourself so that you don't get too excited about what's there, but just see it there with some sort of temperance and, and steadiness, that's pretty much it. It's not going to be any more or less than that. It's going to be perhaps more volatile or more intense, but it's that. That's what shows up. That's the devil in the desert. That's the Mara sitting next to shooting arrows at us, okay? The problem is it gets very personal, and that <laughs> the sting of the arrow when it gets personal is a little more vicious, but that's okay. We can handle that because we've already prepared the ground for being able to be on this journey by looking at our minds. Looking at our minds allows everything to settle, you know, so that you see there's nothing in there that's uh, so, so difficult or horror bound. 
So th it's important, I think, to, to sort of, let's just ratchet this thing down so that we feel like we can get a handle on this. And that's also what a teacher is for us, is to guide and encourage you along the way on this, on this ground. Now, uh, let's, so let's look at what a continuum is. In the Buddha, after he awakened under the Bodhi tree, he's, the first sermon he offered was his, his continuum. He said, I teach only one thing. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. That was his continuum. That started the journey where we suffer, where we are uh, in various forms and stages of our own contraction where we resist and complain and blame and point fingers. All of that packaging of suffering, of struggle, which we call life, is the beginning of the journey of his continuum. And then there's the end of the continuum that he called the end of struggle. Now, it sounds like a journey, and from one perspective it is. But what I will hope to show in each one of these talks is that the beginning and end point are exactly the same. Okay? However you hold the beginning, the change of perception of what's occurring is the completion of the path. It doesn't mean we go somewhere in actually a literal sense. It's just that we begin to understand the nature of what we do to ourselves completely differently and surrender or release the need to continue to beat our knee with a hammer. And so I will show you that these continuums are not journeys away from ourselves, but journeys into ourselves for the completion of the path. Now why would the Buddha say that his journey was the journey from suffering to the end of suffering? Why would he say he taught only one thing? I find that very interesting. I mean, he taught a lot of things. I mean, I've been talking for 20 years, it seems, <laughs> from the various subjects that he has brought up over the years in the texts. So, but he says, he could sum summarize all of his teaching in that single continuum. This is very important. This is at the heart of what I want to teach. So, <laughs> the fact is that he talked for 50 years on various subjects, but he never wanted us to escape the fact that everything he said had to do with whether there was more or less struggle in our lives. So he might give a technique or a method or he might suggest something but behind it all at the base of everything he said was does this work for you that is are you struggling more when you try this new technique when you try to cultivate these new qualities of mind or are you struggling less if you are struggling more then you're not on the continuum you're going the wrong way you, if the continuum is from the left side to the right side and we think we're journeying from the left to the right and we are struggling all along the way, I would suggest that we are 
actually in movement back towards the left side, not towards the right at all. This was the key component of whether we were, in quote, advancing or moving or deepening our practice towards the end that he was suggesting, which is the end of struggle, by monitoring our minds in, the, in, that, in that component, in that way. So he would give a lot of instruction, he would give a lot of encouragement, often very specific to the individual. But he would hold us accountable as to whether that particular instruction he was giving was moving us, depending upon how we were relating to it, was moving us from suffering to the end of suffering or back again to suffer more. And he couldn't tell. Only you and I can tell by how it is that we understand and know and have the sensitive sensitivity to know when we are suffering with increased, with, with increased a reference. Now, do you know when you suffer? You see? How about when you're struggling to cultivate and you just don't seem to be moving at all? You know, except when you're in deep samadhi somewhere and you come out and all of a sudden it eludes you, that continuation of that state. And you go, where is that state? In that moment of where is that state? Are you struggling or not struggling? In the moment of thinking your, yourself as incomplete, insufficient, and the need to move forward, are you struggling or are you not? And if you are, question, question the way you're holding yourself, what you believe about yourself in that moment. Don't strive ever more fully towards what you think will end your struggles, which is finding some kind of cultivated harbor that you can rest within. You see how this reframes the whole thing? Each one of the continuums that we will be talking about in the course of this will have that moment in which we realize that we will either be following the continuum or following the sense of self-improvement, which is the opposite of freedom. Self-aggrandizement, self-cultivation, self-manipulation, self-whatever word you want to, adjective you want to place after that. So this is a very humble journey. This is a jump, uh, journey full of humility. But we misread it. We misread the tracks. We're so used to being self-driven. We're so used to following the dictates of what I want and how I should get it and the poor me that's behind it that's trying to accommodate myself through all the, all the self-deprecating feelings I have the self-criticism, the judgments, how I have to get over myself, all of that. This is a very hard journey through that particular assumption. That's the de demon in the, de in the desert. That's the Mara shooting arrows. And the quicker we make the turnaround in the wise direction of what this means, it means the end of suffering. Am I suffering less or more in my practice? 
quicker we make that turnaround, the quicker we direct ourselves, called wise view, all of a sudden the path unfolds. It unfolds. It's the arrow that shot at us that turns into a flower petal that touches us, if you know the Buddha's image. So let us not forget the Buddha's basic continuum, and I will actually have a whole talk on that particular continuum. But I want to explore the graph for a moment that's in front of you. And I want to look at this uh, in terms of, um, of a divided mind. If you look at the top part of that graph, you'll see a divided mind. And then the other in the right-hand side of the graph, you'll see unified mind. And uh, at the bottom, you'll see separation uh, at the left hand and non-separation or something like that on the right. <clears throat> And I, so it, all of these continua move lockstep with one another. You don't get out of one by choosing something you think is easier. And, you know, it's like a box of chocolates, which is the, you know, it's like you bite into each one to find which one. <laughs> Doesn't matter which one, you're going to be stuck with it because it'll be your own. Each of us have a path through our own hearts that is very individually determined. That's why I'm going to lay out a whole series of these paths because eventually I'll hit one that you say, oh, that's, that's the one. That, that, that lights me up. That's the, one I, that's the one I'm on. But it's useful to hear all of them because all of them correspond and are coordinated, are coordinated with the, all the continuum. All the continuum really move in the same direction and have the same risks and the same advantages. So it doesn't, and ultimately, it doesn't make any difference which one we choose. But I just want to talk about the divided mind and the unified mind because it sort of backs it out of a particular uh, suffering or non-suffering or whatever it might be. And it just shows what's going on in us holistically to see where, uh, to see what happens on our spiritual journey. So we start out with a divided mind. So what does a divided mind mean? And again, I'm going to next time we meet, the year, week after next, next time I'm here, uh, I will be talking about this particular subject. Uh, so the divided mind, if you think that you have a mind, that's the divided mind. You don't. You don't have a mind. Okay, I'm just going to let that sink in there for a second. What does he mean? Maybe I should walk out of here. It's more accurate to say that the mind possesses you. The sense of me is not outside having a mind mental experience. The sense of me is a mental experience within the mind. You get a sense of where I'm going here? Just listen. The whole spiritual journey is turning that sense of me that thinks I'm having a mental experience that's outside in some 
mystical way, outside of the mental frame of reference of that experience, back into the fact, the observable and known fact, that the sense of I is a mental process that's occurring. That's the spiritual journey. I just laid out a continuum for you. But you can see the difficulty of that. The sense of I arises in argument to what the mind is already doing. To what it's creating, the emotions that are arising, the thoughts that are occurring, the data that's coming in. There's a component, a hemisphere of the mind that lies, that desires a different reference, desires a different experience, desires a different emotion. And it breaks itself into as I am having. But the I am having is just another experience within the mind. And for us to come to that sense of grounded completion, that there is nothing outside of the mental reference, there's nothing that occurs that isn't an attribute of the mind, that's a unified mind. All your thoughts, all your emotions, all your attitudes, and the sense of I and where it is, all stimulated, all processed, all experienced mentally. There's nothing outside of that. Everything we see, smell, taste, touch, and feel. That's the all. And for us to settle into that all without any division, without claiming a better this, a quieter sound, a more beautiful scene, a nicer emotion, for us to drop our demands releases the division into a unification. And that unified mind that is settled into itself without resistance, because resistance is the very act of division and separation, that's freedom. The problem is that we are so used to looking out from that frame of reference. It's the conditioning way that we have learned to perceive the world. The world is not sorted in that dualistic state of me being here and you being there. That's the sense of me reacting to the perceptions or having a judgment or opinion about what it is I'm seeing. And so that when I have a judgment or a desire or a fear or a resistance, there is struggle. And when there is struggle, there is division. And when there is division, there is separation and I am alone, isolated, in my position. It seems like I'm here and the world is out there. 
And what is it that causes me to believe that? Is an emotion? Is a feeling? Is a thought? But all of those seem to be coming from me. And everything else seems to be stacked against me. So I'm boistering. I'm infusing my own power in aversion to what it is that the world is presenting in this particular moment. So this unified mind is not far away. Look how, it's actually, see how close it is? I mean, it's our division. We're deciding to divide this thing. We're deciding to have the reaction that creates the division. Where's the journey in this? Where's the distance that needs to be covered? Well, the distance is releasing the resistance. That's all. And the perception comes back in unified. Now you can get a sense of that. Because awareness is not owned. It's a unification principle. The more awareness you feel, you'll feel it because you're not resisting components of the mental experience. And the less you resist, the more this awareness, this field of unification, not personally owned, why would it be personally owned? How could a piece of the mind hold awareness? Own awareness. So this unified field of awareness comes back into view. Now if you try to access awareness through your efforts, can't you hear how unsuccessful that will be? Because in that attempt, in that exertion of ambition, there is more division. And the more division there is, you won't see unification because we're not looking for unification. We're looking for ourselves to be aware. Ourselves to be aware is an oxymoron. You see this? It's like, oh, whoa, this is so obvious. Instead of turning myself around and, you know, going this way, which is moving back towards the left end of the continuum, thinking of it as a spiritual scavenger hunt where I have to locate pieces that provide the fulfillment and unification and completeness of myself, I turn to the right, drop the resistance and the unification is there. Now then, I'm using the path, the continuum, to move from suffering, which is division, to non-suffering, which is unification. Just this. But to get from here to there, because we have infused so much power in the assumptions and the way we look, the way we look, we assume you are outside of me. That's the assumptive way we look. But where is the you and where is the me? 
See, if there's no center to the circle, there's no circle. The whole thing opens up. So this is a very different, so this continuum, this process of awakening really needs to be understood so that there is no confusion whatsoever in whatever path, whatever journey we find to be our deepest resonance. We will always know that the completion of that path is simply a turn to the right rather than to the left. And even though I'm, whatever I, when I turn to the right, I still see in left-handed terms, I still see divisively, I still see, you know, I'm, I'm self-anger and all that. It doesn't matter. We know that the direction out of all of that mess is to turn to the right and start dealing with it. Not turn to the left and pretend it doesn't exist and try to get over ourselves. We turn to the right and deal with those issues straight on. And the way we deal with them is not to create more division, more separation within those difficulties because that's not turning to the right at all. That's turning back to the beginning, starting point. It's how we work with those issues. And so these talks are relevant to everyone here. I don't care if you're an absolute beginner off the streets or whether you've been here 20 years. Let's get it right. Let's know how we're faced and let's move in the direction. If you want a completion, if you want to play around, which I don't want to do, at 68 I'm long past wanting that to occur or prolong. I want to end it. And if you're of that heart, which if you're here, you must have some inclination towards that. This is how we do it. Okay, I want to just talk. I want to talk about some of the places, those three little marks on that continuum. And I just want to talk about them because they're common to everyone's experience at some point. Now the question not to ask is where am I on that continuum? Do not ask that. It's none of your business where you are. <laughs> and I haven't had this experience. I don't care. It doesn't matter whether you've had this experience. Everyone in the room is on the journey to awakening. That's all you need to know. If you're willing to look at things that you haven't been willing to look at before, that you stop denying areas of yourself that you have long since resisted, if you just start moving your conscious attention forward, you will find every one of these will have their own place within your practice. Okay, so let's look at false nirvana. I picked that out because it's very common. You don't hear it because You've only likely haven't been having the interviews I've had. But a false survival, usually we start on a path, the journey, with a particular issue that we want resolved. And 
it has something to do with being bottled up inside, usually. Now, it could be, you know, people say, you know, I have, my mind's too noisy, or I'm too anxious, or, you know, I'm too emotionally volatile, or they'll have a, a whole bunch of, of uh, experiences which they want to get over, basically, and that's why they come to meditation. At some point along the journey, because of the way we start relating to ourselves as opposed to condemning ourselves, there could be, and there likely would be, will be, a catharsis in which a revelation, a, a sense that that particular issue has been resolved in you or, or, or definitely understood in a certain way. And this could, uh, energy, because it's been bottled up inside of us for so long, that energy will be released almost cathartically, energetically. You'll feel it in the body. You'll feel, uh, sometimes in extreme forms, there's a lot of shaking, a lot of uh, shakti that comes out of it. Uh, but a tremendous sense of relief. A tremendous sense of relief. And an accompanying thought like, this must be it. This, I must have resolved the whole continuum here. This, this must be freedom. Right? Now, when you've had something that has been pressing on you for your entire life, it's suddenly been released, and it can be released very slowly or it can be released very suddenly, it feels like this tremendous weight off your shoulders. And you really do think, sincerely, that this must be the journey's end. That's a false nirvana. Many people, or some people, get off the path or stay there because that's really where they wanted to go. They wanted to meet this problem and just settle in to the fact of being a person without this particular oppression all the time. But after a while, you'll find that there are other oppressions within you that haven't been met, that haven't been satisfied. And even though this was a huge one, you'll also find often a residual uh, pressure that uh, has the same formula as the old one that comes back in. And so it was a, a lot of pressure off the cooker. You know, the top was taken off and steam poured out. But unless it's completely resolved, likely that pressure will start to build in a different way, perhaps not in exactly the same frame of reference, but in a different way. And I've had people come to me and claim their enlightenment uh, when you can just see that it was a catharsis, an emotional catharsis, which is fine, which is fine. I've actually even been fooled, but uh, over time, you don't get fooled so much anymore. And you also begin to see the, the parts of this. This is what they wanted to alleviate, and they freely let it go once it became known to them. But there is so much other tension within that person that they don't want to see, and they don't want to let go, and they don't want you to touch. And freedom is freedom. Freedom isn't partial. Freedom is a whole mind, a mind that is not divided against itself, that is conscious, that is aware in its totality. 
So uh, just to be aware that these, it can sometimes be gradual, it doesn't have to be, again, doesn't have to be dramatic, but you can go, God, I don't have that anymore. Oh, this is so nice. You know? And then that resting place where they, we just don't want to move from there. This may be good enough. And it's not my job to uh, prod you on. It's your job to encourage yourself forward. And you have to find a new incentive. And oftentimes that incentive doesn't look personal anymore. It could be that you uh, want to be kinder and you, I don't know what it will look like. It looks, it takes various forms. And that's where your continuum will come in as well. Up until that catharsis experience, you've been just, you know, dealing with yourself embattlement. But now there's a genuine openness to being able to pick a continuum. And so the, really the continuum does start uh, once the false nirvana is understood. Okay, so let's look at uh, counter-influence. Counter-influence on there, again, this, is, this can be anywhere in the continuum, but at some point, the, the counter-influence, it's very interesting that you, you work yourself, and I, I can remember saying at some point, I realized this was years into my practice, but believe me, it doesn't have to be years, so don't take that as some kind of standard equation for how long this particular thing lasts. But for me, it was like, I was just, uh, I was overindulgent in my need for willful effort. I just thought I could do this myself. And so I just carried myself along. And at some point I realized that this whole practice was self-induced. It was all me. I had made my practice. This is, you know, a self-made person, a self-made spiritual journey. And uh, it, it felt, I felt very isolated, very... You know, it's like building muscles. You know, you you have a lot of muscles, but so what? You know, you don't you don't have the contentment. Uh, so you look good, you can sit well, you know, you have a strong mind, you have a steel cutting concentration. All of those are willfully induced, but you don't have joy. You don't have contentment. You don't have relaxation. You don't have ease. You don't have kindness. So there's a turnaround, there's a moment in which you realize that you can't do this alone. That's true humility. You realize that you've been carrying yourself along with your efforts and your will and that what you have to do to tr truly turn to, towards the end of suffering because really you've carried a certain level of tension and suffering along within your practice up until then in the way we've been dealing with the practice, the efforting, the striving, the ambition. And you realize that that's not ever going to settle the equation, that you can't strive yourself into relaxation. And this gets in deeply. This gets into your cells. And then all of a sudden you don't know where to go. You want to talk about a dark night? You talk about a dark night when you don't know where to go. Everything you've done, you've done, and you're still not there. 
and you can't do any more. And some of us take a long time to get to that. Some of us do it very quickly. I was stubborn. But when it happens to you, it deflates. It's like somebody puts a pin in a balloon. It deflates everything. You don't know what to do. And you don't know what to go and you don't know how, you know, so then like you have to reorganize the whole system. And it's not willful effort that comes out of that. It's, okay, what, the end of struggle. It's like, okay, how do I end struggle? I'm really interested now. This isn't just me wanting a new act for my will, but how do I end struggle? And what is struggle? And who am I struggling against? You see, all these questions, very deep and profound questions, rise to the surface then. Which I didn't care about those answers before because I was doing it. Now I have to figure out who I was that was doing it. And what I was, how this force, this posture of me creates the division and the separation and the suffering and the divided mind that I was trying to get over through creating more division. And again, the humility of that. And time and distance, which are the measuring factors of me in a world of division, in a world of separation. Everything has time and distance. I'm this far from you. It'll take this long for me to cross the path. I've got a journey this way and it'll be years and lifetimes and all of the ways that Buddhism in particular builds a kind of, builds a sort of uh, defeat into the game. It's like talking about lifetimes. Yeah, I, well, you know, it's like, oh, well, I've got, well, I might, no wonder I'm feeling this way. This is probably the first lifetime I've, how do you know that? How do you, how do you know that? How many lifetimes have you been doing this? Feels like my first, doesn't it? Feels like my first too. So the ego becomes counter-influential. That's what counter-influence means. I can't, I can't use it anymore as the strength of... And you can feel yogis, people who are practicing as to whether they've found that counter-influence, met it. And all of us have to, every one of us. So now I want to take you to the paradigm shift. Paradigm shift. Now the paradigm shift can happen at any point on the graph. Interesting enough, it doesn't happen sequentially, after I've countered influence and all of that. It's, it can happen anytime, actually, but it's much more likely to happen when we are on a spiritual journey, when we are focused and have a readiness for that sense of unification 
And when we know the causes of why we stay separated or try to stay divided, and we start working on those very causes, it's much more likely to happen than that moment when you're on the beach and you know all of a sudden, because that that just leaves you starry-eyed. You don't know what or how you got there, and you just. I think Eckhart Tolle said he spent like weeks on a park bench because he was like he didn't have any background. There was no way to to define what had occurred to him. So this paradigm shift, okay, is the moment of awakening. Remember, we're all on the path and within the process of waking. But for all of us, there will be a moment of awakening. Now, sometimes that moment is not as revelatory as it is for many people. It can be. Sometimes people just somehow just are, they're just different. They just, it's not like you just wake up that way, but your practice has culminated to a certain point where you understand. And you might not have had a particular experience that has led to that understanding. Now, I think that's more rare. Usually there is, and it can be dramatic, or it can be just, oh, wow, of course, oh, wow, like that. But it's a figure ground switch. It's a shift of identity. Before we've been practicing, and all of us have been practicing, very deeply enmeshed in the idea of self moving to something called no-self. The fact is that we were never some a self. We're not moving out of ourself. We're realizing what we've always been. That's the moment of the shift of identity. The moment of the shift of identity is the realization that we are, never have been what we thought we were. The ground has just been pulled out from under us. And the infinite, which is the far right hand of the continuum, is now the reference point, not the sense of self. And in fact, we see that the sense of self is being birthed by the infinite. And that changes everything. Most people are temporarily within that perception and then come back out into the more normal perception, normal, crazy perception that we have, which we call, claim as normal. And then they, but here's the difference. Once that perceptual shift has happened, there is no doubt as to where you're going. Even though the world may look to you pretty much like it looks to you in this moment with the same configuration, still that particular experience showed us, revealed something that is forever within us. Once awakened, forever awakened. And with that, you have no doubt about the journey or the direction of the journey. And that speeds up your journey geometrically. Because you, if you're honest, before that occurs, you're full of doubt. It's like, what am I doing here? You know, it's like, let's just get back and, you know, get back to the, to the argument. But once that shows, it's like, whoa, my God. And there is no counter-argument to it. Because it's not a belief. 
It's the living reality. And the second thing it does, irreversibly, is to show you what you are not. You're not what you believed yourself to be. And so those two components are completely wiped off the map forever in your psyche. And so you can see how this paradigm shift is beautiful, but it's also in some ways the beginning of a true orientation to the right side of the journey. Now, so saying, we're all moving in that direction. Don't try to make it happen. If you try to make it happen, you're turning back to the left side. You've just got to be open to it. Say, oh, yeah, I offer the prayer of the heart. Let me know what the truth of reality is. And be sincere. Be, be, knock. Be sincere. Like, I want to know. I want to know if, if this isn't it, I want to know. And then it will start working on you. If you don't want to know, that's fine too. Because there's a lot of six steps up and seven steps back. In fact, that's why it's not linear. It looks more like a maze in which you have to go in all the different blocked compartments of the maze. And that's how you find your way out. But it's a beautiful journey, and I love sharing it. And I hope you love being a part of it. It does take sincerity. And that's why I ask people to come and not leave early. There needs to be some sense of propriety, some sense of sincerity here, some sense of all of us doing this with a sincere heart. If you come in leisurely and put your feet up and turn on, oh, I forgot to turn off my phone. All of that has something to say about the direction you're facing, that we're all facing. We gain momentum through everyone's encouragement, through everyone's sincerity. We feed upon that. It is a synergistic quality of Sangha. And we all have to be, I want this, you know, this is important to me. I want to know the truth. I want to know what's true in life before I die, before the year is out, before the day is out, before I take the next breath. Okay, all. Breathe gently. Can we sit for a minute or two? So if you have, your journey to the right side begins now. Is there struggle? How deeply are you willing to relax?
Okay. If you have any questions or comments, I'd be happy to entertain them for just a few minutes. We're going to have a welcoming section to this meeting, so we're not going to have too much question and answers. But yes. No, not, no, not turning away from the argument. Okay, so turning away from the argument is more struggle. You're turning away, any kind of turning away is adding struggle to it, right? So if, if I use those words, I don't mean it in terms of an aversive response. <clears throat> I mean releasing the struggle. <clears throat> At some point, you see, what, what's captured us is the narrative of our life. That's why we look left. We think we have it right. <clears throat> we think what's the, the voice in our head has an accurate, accurate depiction of life around us and me within that life. And so we follow the voice in our head. And it says try harder. It, the voice is very uh, systematic in its need to struggle because the voice itself comes from struggle. It's derived from struggle, from wanting, fearing, that sort of thing. So we think if we follow it, we've always followed it, it's gotten to us where we are, we'll just keep following it. Much of the journey is uh, diffusing the narrative so that we see that it doesn't hold the truth. I mean, you start with the really crazy things that we say to ourselves and then you start looking you know, at the less crazy things that you suddenly realize are just as crazy and then the things that you think are sane that you see are just as crazy and then it just starts taking, ta robbing us of that. So at some point after a while the narrative, you don't have to turn away from the narrative, you just release it. It's like, oh, I'm not, that's, I don't need that. It's not, I don't need that aversively, it's like, you know, this is a haunted house, this isn't true, I'm just, you know, I can go through it and smile rather than to be in shock with everything that comes out at me. So you just release yourself. And the mind then gets very quiet very quickly. All right? And so then you, are, you, you no longer have invested uh, in the narrative. That begins to bring the mind together holistically. The narrative is what separates it because we keep talking about, we keep talking from someplace about something. That's what the narrative is, you see? So when I'm suggesting, when I say uh, turn away from, it's not, it's like release, release. Use words that are helpful to you. Any word that invites more connection is right-sided words. If I invite connection through the words I use internally in my practice, such as relax, release, connect, those are words that journey very deeply from right-sided language that have me facing in a correct... If I say, you know, deny, avoid, you know, surmount, uh, cultivate, those are left-sided words. Those are willful words that in order to actually maintain in myself, I have to be very fully ascribed and empowered to do that. And that makes me walk my journey towards what? towards more self-empowerment. 
because self-empowerment doesn't end itself. Self-empowerment ends when you say it needs to end because you've seen through it. It doesn't just wither on the vine. It has to be seen and understood and released. Does that make sense to you, Hayden? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, the phrase counter-influence. Yes. I, I don't... When you were talking about it, you talked about the effort and yeah. your ego right. effort. Yes. So I'm wondering... I don't understand counter-influence. Could you explain Yes, that? sure. Uh, egoically feels when we for much of our journey we are egoically influenced right that the, you know we're just we're just up in our heads doing what our heads tell us we need to do in our meditation and so we're following the script what our egos basically think is the way to get through this as if we knew right and we interpret instructions according to the self's advantage the self-empowerment like don't judge. Okay, I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to judge. You know, stop that judging. You know, like that, right? Which is the way the ego relates to non-judging. Okay, at some point you see that yelling at yourself not to judge is not, influ is not helping. Many, many little insights all along the way begin to show you that those things are counter-influential against the way you really want to go. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Good. So uh, just, again, I mean, the book that I wrote really was an attempt at communicating this and is much, going to be much more complete in its ability to communicate this than just having a series of lectures. So if you read just the chapters I'm suggesting as we move through this, chapter three for the next time I'm here, which is the divided mind, and chapter six for this one, it would be very helpful because it will re-encourage. You need a lot of reinforcement. You need, to be, you need this to be said again and again and again because the conditioning is not in this way. Our conditioning is towards you know, muscling our way through not surrendering our way through. So it can be helpful. Okay, uh, any final question before we... Yes. You uh, spoke of cultivation as being an effortful word. Yes. Okay, so, okay, it's a very good question. The question is about cultivation. Now, uh, let's just look at it, okay. You, you know, you start out and you go, God, I don't see anything holy in me at all. I mean, I'm just like this, uh, you know, I've got this history. See, you, you bring your past up to depict the present. And you failed in chemistry, you know, and you were pretty good in math, but blah, blah, blah. Like like that, it's like this, and then this is happening. This is the hardest thing I've ever done, you know. And I I can't do it, and it just you feel all of the uh, incriminating evidence that you're not up to the task. Okay, so many people, many teachers suggest the cultivation of certain good qualities to boister. It's skillful means. It 
It gets you so that you're feeling lighter about yourself rather than so disadvantaged, right? Which can be very helpful. I'm just not going and encouraging that during these series. I don't want to take that away. I want you to do that if it feels right for you. Okay, but let's look at it from right-sided direction. The right side, okay, if you look at the feeling of self-despondency and self-failure, what is that? That's an emotion, that's an attitude, that's a feeling. If I just hold those feelings rather than doing anything about them, rather than trying to counteract them or counter-influence them with good feelings, they don't last very long. The problem is I keep engendering them through the logic of my past, through what I've always been, and uh, yeah, maybe I have a moment of respite from this thing, but really I am this faulted person I believe myself to be. So once we get over reconditioning in that sense of self-description, we're ready to tackle the problems that will maintain themselves. You'll still feel moments of discouragement, and at some point you have to be able to hold that discouragement without believing it. Now you're moving to the right. You were moving to the right even when you were cultivating, but it was moving, circ it kind of, you know, it's like going around 405 rather than up I-5, right? That's okay. That's, that's how most of us do it. It's just that I'm not going to be stressing 405 on this particular series. I'm going to stress I-5, right? Okay. Right, so I want everyone to feel that whatever they're doing that feels like you're in your seat spiritually, you're doing fine. You're, doing, you're exactly where you want to be. This series may not fit you. It may not be one that you want because it throws you off too much or something. And you feel just right within your seat. That's fine. You stay within your seat. And uh, there are lots of other teachings that go on here throughout the week that you're very, very welcome to come. You're welcome to come to this too, but it may throw you a little bit. Okay? At 68, I want to be on I-5. And so... <laughs> okay, all. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.